In the mid-70s, there was a, a hospital in, in uh, Thailand called Manoram. It still exists. Some of you may uh, pray for it or be aware of it, supported by OMF. And there was uh, a day trip that the staff of that hospital had arranged. It was a group of doctors and their families and nurses, and they went off in a big minibus to go away for the day for a picnic. And they had a, a, a very enjoyable day, leaving just one or two people behind at the hospital to look after the patients that came during that day. And they, were, um, they went across, they went to the sea, they had uh, a day with the children swimming, they had a meal together, and they were on their way back, and they were about half a mile away from the hospital on their return, when a drunk in a large lorry came round on the wrong side of the road and wiped out that minibus. There were a few survivors, uh, in particular, one of the hardest things was one of the surgeons who I know well at that hospital who was left behind had to himself operate on his wife knowing that he had lost his children. And that situation in a Christian hospital called many people around the world, not only in the surrounding village, to question what was God doing in that situation? A young Christian couple tried years for having a baby. They eventually rejoiced and their church did with them as they conceived, only to find out that the child had a severe disability that was going to mean years and years of careful nursing with that child never reaching the potential beyond a six-month-old baby. The wife of one of my closest friends at the moment has just been diagnosed with a pelvic cancer. We shared that at an evening service recently. Three young children, uh, a lady who's the worship leader in her church, very devout couple, very loyal couple to God. And here she's now facing the situation where She's not only having chemo, but she has all sorts of other treatment that she's going to potentially need. What is God doing in that situation? A family went to celebrate the grandparents' golden wedding anniversary and they decided to go to Sri Lanka. It just happened they went over Christmas and the family were wiped out with the tsunami. Each of us can apply those different situations in our own lives, either individually or things that we've heard or things we come across in the news every week. And we ask the question, why does God allow these things to happen? And fundamental behind that question and that, that concern we have, is this really the behaviour of a loving, just God? Well, this morning we see Abraham in a similar position. Abraham has had an up and down relationship with God in terms of seeing God at work. He's had lots of promises, some of which are yet to be fulfilled. He's been very obedient to God in the previous chapters as he's been asked to do this and do that, as Brian alluded to. And yet now he finds that he has a fundamental concern that the God he has put all that trust in and been dependent on looks as if he is being unjust. Indeed, God's integrity is being questioned by the things that Abraham is now being faced with. And you see, the way we respond to the things when they come to us like that has a huge impact on the way that we then walk with God. I guess there will be people here this morning who have had situations like that and that his, their spiritual lives have never been the same again since. That it stunted them, that they are angry with God and this morning they are not the Christian they were maybe a decade ago. Maybe there are others here this morning who have... Who, cannot accept God in the first place because they're battling with these issues of 
how can I put my trust in a God who on the other hand is doing this? Where is his dependability? Well these verses this morning I believe reassure and we see Abraham at the end of this incredible discourse with God being ending up totally reassured once again that he is in safe hands, that he's in solid hands. And maybe that, may that be also the reminder for us this morning. Let's look at this passage together now. Let's remind ourselves of the context. As uh, Peter said when he read it, um, the, these three men that we, t- we hear about are, are manifestations of, of God. In the previous part of the chapter, um, we see that they visited Abraham, three men, and uh, they also... Uh, and, and Abraham entertained them. And at the very beginning of the verses we're looking at, verse 16, we see that they're now leaving and Abraham as the perfect host is walking with them as they start their journey. We're told in the beginning of chapter 19 that these two of these, the ones that carried on, were two angels. And these were, as uh, Peter said, it's still not completely understood what these three men were, but they were certainly manifestations of God's spiritual beings. And we see that two of them go ahead and Abraham is left then talking before God himself. In a few weeks' time, we're going to be starting a series on prayer. Surely there can't be one of the best prayers in the Bible of seeing God, of seeing Abraham being real with God, grappling with these issues, and in turn God responding to him. So let's see what we can see to learn from this prayer. The first thing we see at the beginning is that it is God who takes the initiative. Verse 16 to 20. When the men got up to leave, they looked down towards Sodom, and Abraham walked along with them. Then the Lord said, Shall I hide from Abraham what I'm about to do? And he has this incredible discourse where we see God himself having a conversation with himself as to whether he should share something with the man he had created. Throughout the accounts of Abraham, and indeed scripture, we see this pattern that it is God who initiates the conversation Chapter 12, verse 1, the Lord said to Abraham. Chapter 15, we see another example. The word of the Lord came to Abraham and then we see Abraham responding. Chapter 17, then God said to Abraham. And again in 18.1, the Lord appeared to Abraham, etc., etc. And we see it repeated throughout Scripture in many other examples. It is God who takes the initiative. We don't know how God spoke. We don't know if it was audible. We certainly know that some of the examples were in visions and dreams. But each time what is clear is that it was God who initiated the conversation and it was Abraham who responded to that. We often find it so hard to pray, don't we? We have to we think about how on earth can we pray? What are we going to say to God in these situations? But God wants to remind us this morning that when we're in these situations, He is initiating and he wants us to listen and to respond. John White White put it like this, the quality of a conversation often depends on the person who started it. How true that can be also in prayer, that it is God initiating and we respond. A few months ago I uh, was trying to use our new electric juicer that... uh, I had given Hillary for Christmas and decided that I was going to make her a nice uh, fruit drink. So I chopped up all these fruits, I put this thing together, it had different bits to construct when we first got it, I plugged it in and got the fruit in and lo and behold nothing happened. 
So I worked on it. I sort of put these screws that we put together and just checked that they were all aligned. They were. I checked that the switch on the machine was on. It was. I checked all these things and felt a little bit disillusioned. And then Hillary, in a very gentle manner, entered the door and just asked me whether, in fact, it was worth switching on the plug at the socket. Now, that's the sort of thing that can cause marital strife very easily for, for a man as they try to uh, use machines that we're proud of being able to use. You may have had a similar experience. You see, in that situation, I was busy playing around with this machine, and yet the machine itself can do nothing at all without the power of the electricity that needs to come from that socket. And whatever I'd done, even though it had a powerful motor, even though it had a nice knife for cutting the, the fruit, there's nothing I could do without making sure that the power was coming in and the machine responding. Well, that's a very, very simple and indeed a very limited analogy because if we get into power cuts and all sorts of things, then we get into dodgy theology. But so often we're, when we're in active service with God, whether it be in our prayer lives, whether it be in our evangelism, even when it look, we're looking at a church or churches at five-year plans, we spend so much frenetic activity, so much concern, so much time formulating strategy, formulating different ways of doing things. And yet God wants to remind us that all we need to do is to be listening to him, to be obedient to him, and he initiates and we then respond. There was a nice analogy about the Volvo that, yes, we have to start moving, but we're only doing that in response to God's call. And God will then guide us and show us. As we try to pray about the bingo hall, let's not get ourselves uptight, concerned, worries. Let's not have increased ulcers in the church as a result of this. Let's be seeking God's will, but remembering that God already knows that answer. And we are to be obedient to him. Let's be listening people as much as we are speaking people. Indeed, God's initiative is the whole message, the core message of the whole of our Christian faith. As we reminded in Romans 8, 5, 8, but God demonstrates this. His own love for us, while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. God has taken and continues to take the initiative. But what is extraordinary about this passage is not that just God's taken initiative, it's the actual content of this particular conversation that I think is absolutely incredible. You see, what we see here is we see the all-knowing, the all-powerful, the God who, in a chapter's time, is going to wipe out a city with an instruction, actually worrying about whether he should discuss it with some fallen creature. Why did God bother discussing what he should do or whether he should not do it with Abraham? Let's look at verses 17 and 19 together again. Then the Lord said, Shall I hide from Abraham what am I about to do? Verse 19, For I have chosen him so that he will direct his children and his household after him to keep the way of the Lord by doing what is right and just so that the Lord will bring about for Abraham what he has promised. You see, what these verses show us very clearly is that God didn't just want to have a conversation with Abraham. He didn't just want to be a God who then just happened to speak to the created being and the created being speak back. He wanted a full partnership with Abraham. He elevates Abraham to be his friend, his partner, 
as he rules the world and he wanted to share his plans with Abraham and in turn he wanted to hear Abraham's views. Isn't that incredible? Is that a reality for you and for me this morning? You see, there are many ways in which Abraham is very different from us. It's a unique calling he had. But what the rest of Scripture reminds us and what the New Testament Gospel reminds us is that actually we are like Abraham in the sense that we are special to God and he wants to share the ruling of his universe with people like you and people like me. John 15 says this, Jesus' own words, I no longer call you servants because a servant does not know his father's business. Instead, I have called you friends for everything I have learned from my father I have made known to you. Do you really believe that this morning? Do I really believe that this morning in practice? That you, that I, fallen and fallen creatures though we are, that we have a role in fulfilling God's purposes here on earth, not just as some servants that happen to be carrying that out, although that's an important part, but actually that God delights in sharing his plans with us. I wonder how you picture God when you pray. Have you ever thought about that? When you sit and pray on your own or when you sit in church, what, do you, what image do you see of God when you do that? Do you see him as a person? Do you see a blank, blank wall or a blank sky that you pray to? Do you see him as an awesome God who you dare not even look at? Do you see, as many of the Western church are moving towards, a, a pal that you can just sort of say hello to whenever you want to? How do you visualise God when you pray to him? You see, our answer to that question often reflects the way in which we see his character. How we see God when we pray. Because what Abraham is seeing here is that yes, God is awesome, he's powerful, he's majestic, he's holy, and we dare not come to him in our own strength at all. But he also sees that he is someone who wants to have a full partnership with his people, and that revolutionises our prayer life. Because rather than coming with our petitions to God, rather than having to say, God, if it's your will, do this, but of course, um, we're not going to, it doesn't matter if you do that. I had a badge when I was um, given a badge a few years ago that says, the meek will inherit the earth, if that's all right with everyone else. And we often have that sort of approach, don't we? we in our prayer, we say, well, we want all these things, but only if it's your will, and then we turn back and, and sort of leave it at God's feet and turn around. But what we're reminded in these passages is that God wants a much more dynamic relationship. He wants to share that. And let's remember that in our prayer lives and in the lives of our church, that God is wanting to reveal his purposes because he delights in us being part of the plans for him to rule the world. When we lived in Australia, we went to, uh, on holiday in New Zealand and we went to a place called Queenstown, which many, some of you may have been to. And Queenstown is famous for being the place where bungee jumping was first uh, initiated. And if you stay in Queenstown, there's lots of places where they have all the sort of fast uh, sports, they have the whitewater rafting, they have bungee jump centres galore, and all sorts of other crazy events. And uh, we went to the family to watch some bungee jumping. I say watch, because uh, I get the vertigo standing just on one of those chairs. 
But as we watched this bungee jumping, it was very interesting. You could either just go along and as a beginner have one jump and quite a low jump and just enjoy it. Or if you were completely crazy, you could do what was called the adrenaline experience. Now the adrenaline experience was where you got to do eight, between eight and ten jumps during the course of the day with increasing adrenaline as you did them. And I'll give you an example. We watched in the first, first jump in this adrenaline jump is a straightforward jump. And then jump two is when you face backwards. And jump three, which is when we arrived, this person had a blindfold, in, blindfold on, was going forward. Now, as if that wasn't crazy enough, the next one is a blindfold going backwards. And the next one was the most concerning. This chap was on the ledge of this highest jump, blindfolded backwards, with a rubber rope attached around his legs. And the man up there looked completely in charge, who was looking after him, and said to him, OK, jump. And as he jumped backwards, he said, wait, 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 your rope isn't attached properly. Now, I missed a beat at that stage, and the, the, the children thought, good, we're going to see some blood here. And the whole thing, except to realise that actually this was just part of that adrenaline surge. This chap panicked and he reached his arms up thinking this was going to be his last jump and of course this was just part of the fun. But what that showed, what that showed me at the time in fact was this, that we have a parallel here I think with what Abraham was experiencing. Abraham in a way had had a spiritual bungee jump like a lot of us experience but the one thing he'd been absolutely certain is yes he was diving into the unknown but he knew that the person that was attaching his rope, who was holding his feet, was totally dependable and totally sure. And yet suddenly he now sees God as the person who metaphorically was holding his bungee jump suddenly looks as if he is the person who may not be holding him quite as securely as before. He's suddenly struck by the fact that the God he has trusted in the previous chapters may actually, after all, have injustice. Now, we see here Abraham coming before God and what we read in verse 22 to 25 is incredible step of boldness. Verse 22, The men turned away and went towards Sodom, but Abraham remained standing before the Lord. Then Abraham approached him and said, Will you sweep away the righteous with the wicked? What if there are 50 righteous people in the city? Will you really sweep it away and not spare the, pla the place for the sake of the 50 righteous people in it? Far be it for you to do such a thing, to kill the righteous with the wicked, treated, treating the righteous and the wicked alike. Far be it from you. Will not the judge of all the earth do right? The message version of the Bible puts it like this. Abraham confronted God. Are you serious? Are you planning on getting rid of the good people right along with the bad? What if there are 50 decent people left in the city? Will you lump the good and the bad and get rid of the lot? Wouldn't you spare the city for the sake of those 50 innocents? I can't believe you'd do that. Kill off the good and bad alike as if there was no difference. Doesn't the judge of all the earth judge with justice? Fits it quite well, doesn't it? And God, and, and Abraham, yes he comes with reverence. Verse 27 now that I've been so bold as to speak, though I am nothing but dust and ashes, and though we see later on in verse 27, he speaks with fear, in 32, 
but he speaks with a boldness and a frankness. You see, what we see here is that Abraham was totally real when he came before God. In our English culture, and I certainly find this, we have a tendency to feel we have to sort out the problems before we go to the person that can solve it for us. Whether it be the doctor, we always try to, particularly as doctors we do, try to stay away from doctors, but uh, a lot of people try to cure themselves before they go to the doctor rather than going for the cure. And spiritually we do that a lot. We try to sort out the problem and then when it really fails, we say to God, okay, well we're going to bring you in at this time. And what we're reminded here is that Abraham came with his concerns, with his doubts, with his anger even. And rather than stewing at home with that, he came straight before God and brought it before him for him to give him answers. This is an incredible prayer, isn't it? We see this God, Abraham grappling with God. He goes for, he says it's 50 and God comes back and says yes. He says, okay, well let's go for 45. Yes. 40? Yes. 30, 20 and then down to 10. There's certainly a parallel with the bartering system but there's far, far more to this message than just saying that he was having a barter with God to see how low he can get. I once was on holiday and ended up with a camel, camel um, rug because we'd enjoyed the bartering. We had no interest in this rug whatsoever but there was the challenge of seeing how low we could get it. That's not what Abraham's doing here. He's not just doing bartering for the sake of it. He really wants to see how just God is. We've no idea why he stopped at 10. We know that Lot's family was uh, probably more than that. But he just wanted to go to God and see God to prove himself and to remind Abraham again that he was a just God. And through it, God did remind him. God reminded Abraham of his true character. You see, there are two purposes of prayer, aren't there? One is to come before God with our petitions for him to show us his purposes. But I think one of the greater purposes of prayer is to come before God to see more of his character. I want us to remind us as a church as we pray for this bingo hall. Wonderful suggestion to pray at midday each day. A church corporately praying even though we're not meeting together at that time. But let's remember that it may well be that God says no, but the process of coming before him, he will show us what his plans are, but more than that, he will show us more of himself in our church. That is why corporate prayer is so important for a church, not just to get answers so we can move on, but so that we are constantly having revealed to us the true nature of Almighty God. And here we see that Abraham is reminded of that. Abraham is reminded first of all, in fact, that God is a just God because he even has a consideration about destroying Sodom in the first place. Go back to verse 22. Why is he going to Sodom? Why has he sent those two people? He's sent them to see whether the problem in Sodom is really as bad as the outcry that has reached him. He wants to make sure that he's not just going to wipe out this city and then find out, in fact, that things are much better than the people who've been crying to him. 
God is a just God. And in verse 33, Abraham is satisfied with that. When the Lord had finished speaking with Abraham, he left and Abraham returned to his work. John White puts it like this, God has never defended himself when I have come to him in my perplexity. I can well understand Abraham's torment, for it is a torment I have felt. I loved God and wanted him to go on being the God that I had always known. I was frightened both of what I seemed to be seeing and by my own temerity in daring to question the judge of the universe. Yet with tears and sweat, the questions had to come. Lord, how could you be like that? And his answer has always been to show me more of himself than I had seen before, so that my tears and perplexity gave place to awe and worship. When was the last time you weep before the Lord when you prayed? Very rarely do we do that. Let's come before God really asking him to reveal himself to us more and more and more. And as John says, so that my tears and perplexity give place to awe and worship. Maybe this morning you're struggling with these issues. Maybe it's stopping you coming to God in the first place. Maybe for years you have been focusing on something that happened to you years ago that has stunted your Christian growth and made you a different person from the spiritual being you were a few years ago. This passage calls us to come before God with those hurts, with those anger, and to ask him to restore us, to change us. Abraham's plea for justice. God took the initiative. He wanted a partnership with Abraham. He was real with God. And God reminded Abraham of his true character. But very briefly, we now see the other side of the coin. And that is God's demonstration of judgment in chapter 19. We see that those two angels arrive in Sodom. And if we look at verses 4 and 5, we see that these came to the city. They were met by Lot, who was sitting at the uh, gateway. And in 4 and 5, before they had gone to bed, all the men from every part of the city of Sodom, both young and old, surrounded the house. They called to Lot, where are the men who came to you tonight? Bring them out to us so that we can have sex with them. We need to be very careful. These verses aren't about fundamentally about homosexuality. They're often used out of context. We need to be very cautious when we're interpreting scripture. The main problem in Sodom was that it was a city of complete godlessness and depravity where all the loving relationships that God had intended had been replaced by these sort of activities, the gang rape that was described here. And as we've been reminded, God is true to his character, his justness, but he also has to be true to his holiness and his complete inability to tolerate such sin. God can do absolutely everything except be inconsistent to his own character. He is patient, he is just, but he cannot turn a blind eye to godliness godlessness and ultimately God has to judge he is patient in his anger we see him being patient there in his decision with Abraham he goes down and seeks out where the problems there he even has this 
long discussion with Abraham. Even when Lot is being saved, he asks God to give him one more uh, change of plan. Can I go to actually a different place than the one that you're intending? And even then, God is patient with him. But ultimately, there is a time when God's patience runs out and he has to judge as he did judge Sodom and Gomorrah. And these verses are very clearly a message for our nation. We can't help but read these verses without asking whether there are parallels. We may well not have reached the depravity of Sodom, but there are many, many things in our culture which are very, very similar indeed. A few years ago, a Christian commentator in the States said this, if God doesn't do something soon about the United States, he may have to apologise to Sodom and Gomorrah. And the point he was making was not that God needs to apologise, but rather that the state of Western civilization is reflecting many different aspects of what was happening in Sodom. Our nation is becoming more godless and God may well judge it. I received an email this week about a town in Indonesia called Mabola. Many of you may, may have also heard this story. That town was mainly Muslim. It's a town in Indonesia and there are about 400 Christians present in that town. At Christmas this year, they were banned from celebrating Christmas. The Muslims in charge said there was no way they could have any part of celebration. They couldn't put anything up that showed Christian symbols. They could not meet together in any of the public buildings to worship. And if they wanted to celebrate Christmas, they were to leave the town and not do anything within the city. About 400 of them uh, on uh, Christmas Eve decided to go up into the mountains surrounding the village and set up camp and have a family Christian Christmas up in the mountains above this village. The next day the tsunami wiped out the whole of the village that they had left behind. I remember travelling through Malaysia and Thailand as a student and we went through southern, uh, up Malaysia in, through southern Thailand and into Thailand from there. And we went through several different villages where the children were being sold and you could see them being put into cars and taken up to Bangkok for the uh, child sex trade. And the feeling of oppression in that town was absolutely palpable. The evil, the nearest to Sodom and Gomorrah I've ever witnessed in just walking through a town such as that. The tsunami wiped out that village as it did many other villages. Now we have to be very, very careful and I earn a lot of caution on interpreting the tsunami and what, why it happened and, and what is re revealed from that. We have to urge caution. But nonetheless, this story of Sodom and Gomorrah reminds us, as does the tsunami in part, that God can just wipe out whole towns, whole villages, whole cities if he wants to. And in this case in Sodom and Gomorrah, it is clear why he did it. He did it as part of his judgment and his holiness and intolerance of sin is no less now than it was back in that time. It's a message for our nation and we need to be on our knees pleading for our nation. But of course, a nation is only made up of individuals. It's easy to see people acting in gangs. You only have to go to a football match. I did promise I wouldn't include a football analogy 
I'm just going to mention it very briefly. If you go to a football match and you've got 34,000 people all behaving as a group, chanting together, they get into the same behaviour together and that's often when the fights start together, urging each other on. But at the end of the day, it's made up of individuals who both in civil law will be judged and the same happens in cities and towns. Each individual comes before God to be judged. You see, this message is a reminder, yes, of the delivery of Lot, yes, of the justice and the showing of God's dependability to Abraham, but even not all Lot's family are saved. We see the so-called son-in-laws. It looks, we're told his daughters were, uh, had not uh, had sex with women earlier in the chapter, and it says that they are then pledged to marry. Son-in-laws were pledged to marry. It looks as if they were probably fiancés. They just treated it as a joke, verse, uh, verse 14. But his son-in-laws thought that Lot was joking and they stayed behind and were destroyed. And of course Lot's wife, she got almost there but she was told not to look back, not to seek after what was left. And we're told that she, well, she's turned to a pillar of salt, what she was, the, the lava came over her and she was uh, literally petrified by that. You see, although Sodom and Gomorrah were destroyed, individuals would come before God for judgment. And this is a terrifying message if we reject God. It is a terrifying message if we reject God. He is patient with us, but he will also judge. But ultimately, the the final verse reminds us that if we do trust in him, we have nothing to fear, even though things around us cause us to question him, cause us to, to be concerned. Verse 29, so when God destroyed the cities of the plain, he remembered Abraham and he brought Lot out of the catastrophe that overthrew the cities where Lot had lived. Isaiah says these verses which I just want to end with. Isaiah 55, seek the Lord while he may be found. Call on him while he is near. Let the wicked forsake his way and the evil man his thoughts. Let him turn to the Lord and he will have mercy on him. And to our God, for he will freely pardon. Yes, it's a message of judgment. But if we turn to him, it is one of the most glorious messages of delivery and hope. Let's just spend a few moments reflecting. Let's apply those things to our own lives. We'll have different ways of applying it, different things we need to address before God.